Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. A solidly Republican district in North Carolina is holding a special election today. We head along to a pre-election rally hosted by President Donald Trump. How much will the poll's outcome reflect on Mr. Trump's chances at a second term? And there are some perfectly grammatical sentences that would take more than a lifetime to say. A new book explores the notion that humans' practically infinite capacity for language reflects some universal features of their mental machinery. But first... It's been a bruising six days in Britain's parliament. Fighting over Brexit has left the world's oldest political party reeling. When 21 conservative members refused to support keeping a no-deal Brexit on the table, Boris Johnson, the prime minister, expelled them. Two cabinet resignations followed. Mr. Johnson's own brother, Joe, and Amber Rudd, the work and pension secretary. Many Tories have looked on with horror at what has unfolded, not only at the sacking of some of its most esteemed and moderate members, but at what looks like the party's lurch to the right. Some lay the blame at the door of Dominic Cummings, Mr. Johnson's senior advisor, and the man that many believe to be the person really running the country. I've been brought out here today because I am absolutely furious at the Conservative Party, namely Dominic Cummings and uh, Boris Johnson. Ed Shackle is a young Conservative, a Remainer and one of a group protesting outside the party's headquarters in Westminster. They have turned what was a moderate party into a hard-right party, a a party that doesn't represent its members, a party where to be someone like Ken Clark or Nicholas Soames, Churchill's grandson, has been kicked out because they're not supporting a no-deal Brexit, which nobody voted for in 2016. It's absolutely absurd. For now, the British Parliament has shut up shop. It'll reconvene in mid-October. But the politicking will continue. Is the Tory party irreparably damaged, or can it find a way to survive this seismic period in British politics? Well, I think what's happened in the last week is the splits inside the party have become much more overt and obvious. John Pete is our Brexit editor. I mean, a party that has to expel 21 MPs, many of whom were former ministers, then loses two more ministers from the government and is squabbling over precisely what to do over Brexit, is clearly a party that's not in a very healthy state. And there is a big argument going on about the future of the party, should it just become a party that is only defined by whether it supports a no-deal Brexit, or should it be a more traditional centre-right party? So I think the party is in some trouble. On the other hand, its poll rating has held up, and indeed um, the polls suggest 35% support for the Conservatives. So it's not in terminal decline. 
But there is a lot of fretting going on this week in particular about the the notion that the party is drifting towards the hard right. It is drifting towards support for a no-deal Brexit. That, in a sense, was what Boris Johnson, the prime minister, stood for most obviously when he was elected leader of the party. And I think many people would define that as a hard right position. In other respects, it actually is a fairly traditional party. He's quite a liberal figure. He supports lower taxes, but actually they're increasing quite a lot of spending on health and so on. It's just that Brexit now has become the defining issue in British politics. And on that score, the Tories do look as if they've drifted towards the position of the Brexit party, which only stands for one thing, and that is to leave the European Union with no deal. There's also been quite a lot of talk about the Svengali-like advisor Dominic Cummings. What do we know about his uh, motives and methods? He's absolutely committed to leaving the European Union. He was the the chief architect of the Vote Leave campaign in, in 2016. And now that he seems to be Boris Johnson's chief advisor, he is taking a pretty hard line. I think he was certainly involved in the decision to throw out the MPs who voted against Boris Johnson last week. He has repeatedly dismissed parliamentary reservations about leaving with no deal and said there's nothing parliament can do, we're going to leave on the 31st of October, whatever they say. And he's he's taking a pretty tough line on, on the desirability of leaving with no deal. He's a bit of a sort of iconoclast who thinks that the way to shake up Britain is to kick over the table and see what happens. And I think that's one of the reasons he seems to support an, a no deal Brexit and to have persuaded the prime minister that that's, that's a good tactic. And, and is it clear that, that Mr. Johnson is on board with all of that, that those, those two gentlemen are aligned in this, in this idea? I think that's a good question. Um, I mean, Boris Johnson's ostensible position has been he wants a deal with the European Union. He repeated this again when he saw Leo Varadkar, the Irish Taoiseach, this week. He says he does not want to leave with no deal. But be in no doubt that outcome would be a failure of statecraft for which we would all be responsible. Cummings is a bit more nuanced than that and doesn't really think a deal is available and would be very happy to leave with no deal. And I think as we get close to this October 31st deadline, the differences there may become a bit more pronounced in terms of how Boris Johnson treats the European Union when he goes to this crucial summit on the 17th of October. Cummings would want him to say, if you don't give me what I want, we're leaving with no deal. Boris Johnson may be a bit more inclined to say, surely we can just negotiate something that allows me to save face. And I think that negotiation will be very important for the future of the country and the future of the Tory party. I mean, to, to look at it, it appears that Mr. Johnson and perhaps Mr. Cummings um, are, are trying to sort of pitch this as uh, they are the only ones who are really trying to deliver Brexit and that Parliament is the enemy and that they are the saviours. Do, do you think that that's really what's going on? I think there is a, a, a political and campaigning strategy behind Mr. Johnson's hard line on Brexit and on the desirability of no deal, which is they believe that an election will come this year because the government has lost its majority. And although so far Parliament is refusing to agree to have an election, it's likely to do that maybe during October. So an election could well be held in November. And if it's being held during an atmosphere in which Britain has been unable to leave because the law that Parliament passed has stopped that and there is an extension of the time for further negotiation, I do think that Johnson and Cummings would like to fight that election on the basis that they are the only ones who can deliver Brexit and therefore hoover up Brexit party votes and that Parliament is an obstacle 
Jeremy Corbyn is an obstacle, the Liberal Democrats are an obstacle, they're the people who are trying to defy the will of the electorate as expressed in, in the June 2016 referendum that voted for Brexit. And they hope that that is a way of securing a majority because they hope that the entire Leave vote will, will back the Tories. It's a gamble, um, but it could work. So as of today, Parliament is suspended. What do you think can happen in, in the meantime between now and when Parliament reconvenes? Well, Parliament is due to come back in, in mid-October. There will be political party conferences, which could be quite entertaining. And during this period, of course, there will be continuing negotiations and talks in Brussels over whether a deal on Brexit can be done um, at the European summit on, on the 17th of October. I don't think that those are going to yield a result. Um, and my hunch is that by that time, under the law that's been passed by Parliament, Mr Johnson will have to ask for a longer period and uh, an extension of the October 31st deadline for Brexit. And soon after that, I think that um, there will be uh, an election will be called and that election will probably be fought on the basis of do you believe in Brexit completely or are you willing to consider, for example, another referendum? and perhaps um, cancelling Brexit altogether. So I think that that's going to be the drama of the autumn, and I wouldn't like to predict the outcome. John, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from The Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Last night, President Donald Trump held a rally in Fayetteville, North Carolina. There was this kind of euphoria in the build-up to President Trump coming on stage. John Prito, The Economist's United States editor, was there. And then when he was there... Everybody wanted to get their kind of selfie of them, the crowd, and their picture of the president. Uh, and you could see them kind of sending them to their friends. It's great to be here in North Carolina this 9th Congressional District with the hardworking patriots who believe in faith, family, God, and country. The president made the trip ahead of an election there today that's being seen as a test of his popularity. The vote is a do-over of the midterm election in North Carolina's 9th District, won by the Republican candidate last year. But state investigators later uncovered an illegal voting scheme. For decades, this has been a solid Republican district. But that looks less certain now. North Carolina 9th is a really interesting district. It ought to be very safe territory for Republicans. The district's returned Republican congressmen in every election since 1963, in 2016, Donald Trump won the 9th Congressional District here by 12 points, so blowout, not even close. But this time around, in this special election that's taking place today, the polls suggest that the candidates are quite evenly matched. 
Republicans really ought to win this one. And if they don't, if the Democratic candidate manages to pip the Republican, that reverberation will be felt throughout throughout Congress and people will read into it about Donald Trump's chance of re-election in, in 2020. And why is a Democrat doing so well in this race? Well, I think one reason is that Democrats have picked a good candidate. Their candidate is Dan McCready. He's a former Marine. He's not a career politician. He's up against a Republican called Dan Bishop. So it's the battle of the two Dans, which gets a bit confusing. So when Donald Trump was speaking in the rally in Fayetteville yesterday, he was urging people to vote for the right Dan, not the wrong Dan. But Dan McCready, the Democratic candidate, is Marine. This is a heavily military area. We're close to Fort Bragg, which is a big army base nearby. Um, McCready's opponent, Dan Bishop, the Republican, is a career politician who's come out of state politics. So I think one reason that uh, Democrats are doing well is they pick quite a good candidate. He's gone to some efforts to distance himself from some of the more left-wing members of Congress. You can see the Republican strategy in this race is partly to try, try and tie and the Democrat to um, Nancy Pelosi, but not just Nancy Pelosi, to some of the sort of further left uh, positions of Congresswomen like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and say, you know, there's no difference between these people uh, and Dan McCready, you know, and talk about sanctuary cities and all those sorts of things. So try and paint him as further left than he is. We'll see today whether that's worked or not. So those are the candidates. Is there anything about the district itself that plays into this race? Another reason this race looks closer than you might think is the district is slowly getting a bit more politically competitive. We're not very far from the city of Charlotte. Charlotte's suburbs are spreading kind of east towards North Carolina 9, North Carolina 9 and you know, suburbs tend to bring more kind of competitive voting. So there's a, there's a demographic element to this as well. Do you think Donald Trump's support will make any difference here? There's no doubt that the support of Donald Trump, and the very vocal support, the you know, coming to Fayetteville on his plane, bringing Mike Pence, bringing Donald Trump Jr., who really got the crowd going last night, that uh, is undoubtedly helpful to um, Dan Bishop. He needs turnout levels to get closer to 2016 levels when Donald Trump was at the top of the ticket than 2018 levels, the midterms, which didn't go so well for Republicans in North Carolina. So, yes, I think it'll help. Whether it'll be enough, we will see by the end of the day. And will it cost Mr. Trump politically if his pick doesn't win? I don't think it'll cost Donald Trump that much if Dan Bishop loses this race, which would be a big upset. But his approval ratings are freakishly stable. Since about the second week of his presidency, they've been bumbling on along around 40%. And not much moves that. They go a couple of points up, a couple of points down. But it's not the case that people will say, oh, the Republicans lost in North Carolina and you know I don't like the president anymore. I think that's not how it works. How it could affect him politically is that if... Dan Bishop, the Republican, loses tomorrow in an election that Republicans really ought to win and win comfortably. Republican congressmen will look at their own districts, look at their own re-election prospects next year and start to say, well, you know, if we can't win a district that we won by 12 points in, in 2016, this could get quite ugly for us next year. So how much can we read into this election for signs of how the 2020 presidential race will go? I wouldn't read too much into the results of a single special election, but 
you could take the results of the election today, take the results of the midterms, there have been uh, some other special elections. If you look at all those together, you can say that in lots of districts around the country, Republicans are not as competitive as they should be, particularly not as competitive as they should be in an economy that's this strong with unemployment this low. Um, and so, you know, Republican congressmen will be hoping that that will change in 2020 when you have a presidential election and turnout is much higher um, and the dynamics kind of change for them. But I think they will be, uh, if this election goes badly for the Republican candidates today, they will be getting pretty nervous. Thanks very much for joining us, John. Thanks, Jason. Write a new sentence and Google it. Chances are it appears nowhere among the billions on the internet. A conservative estimate of the number of grammatical, 20-word sentences a human might produce is at least 100 million trillion. That's far more than the number of grains of sand on Earth. It could be that the number of possible sentences, in theory at least, is limitless. The standard view in linguistics is that language is literally infinitely productive. Lane Green writes Johnson, our column on language. And by that I mean there is no upper limit on the number of different sentences that can be made, or even on the length of a sentence. If you imagine, for example, that you can take any declaration like the cat sat on the mat, you can add... He thought that to the beginning of any declaration, so he thought that the cat sat on the mat. You have a finite number of rules and a finite number of words, but because of the combinatorial possibilities, you can get an infinite number of utterances, according to this view. All this comes up in a new book called Language Unlimited by David Adger. He's the president of the Linguistics Association of Great Britain. He believes that this bolting together of small bits into larger units and then combining with others is essentially the power of language. There are other elements like general forms of communication that we share with other animals. Uh, two animals can use a call to alert them, each other to a certain predator, for example, but they can't combine them to say, yesterday a leopard was coming, but tomorrow a snake might come. So the book is suggesting that this is unique to humans. Yes, the idea is that ability to take two units of language, you can merge them together into a single noun phrase, which is a leopard and a snake. And then you can embed that into a larger sentence, which is, I saw a leopard and a snake. It's that combining of forms, which Noam Chomsky, kind of the, considered the godfather of modern linguistics, calls a mental rule that he calls merge. The, the ability to merge two units gets you a larger unit that the brain can then process. It can put it into a larger structure. So how, how is it that humans come to have this ability, even if they don't know perhaps that they have it? Well, the view in David Adger's School of Linguistics is that it is an innate property of the human mind, that the human brain has evolved to create specifically human language. And there's a famous case of a school for the deaf in Nicaragua, the first of its kind, that brought together deaf children from around the country. And they had basically had no language input at home because their parents didn't sign and sign language was not widespread. So they had no language of any kind when they came together. The first generation of children started basically pantomiming and making gestures up on the fly. But very, very quickly, you saw this come to be a fully-fledged sign language with grammar, with rules that you could break and make a mistake and look ridiculous and making the wrong kind of utterance. In other words, not just words, but syntax. And that coming literally out of nothing, out of no preceding language, is a, a strong piece of evidence 
that the mind just kind of wants this kind of language to be, and if it's not there, the mind will create it. So is this book pulling together what the field as a whole believes, or is any of this sort of contentious? Quite a bit of this is contentious. The innateness hypothesis is not universally accepted. For example, some people think that language is essentially an extension of the general intelligence of the human brain. So they think that human brains are uniquely social and therefore our ability to guess each other's thoughts, read each other's thoughts, and and cooperate is the engine behind human language and not some kind of module that's locked in the brain. Other parts that are contentious are especially the sort of merge theory, that merge alone came from one genetic mutation a few tens of thousands of years ago and conferred such a strong survival advantage that it managed to survive and propagate itself through the human population. That in particular is Chomsky and David Adger in this new book, but it's certainly not the view of all the field. Is there a what we can take from this book that is not in question and is therefore valuable? So this book really does two things in the end for me. One is that there's just that sense of wonder about language. It's got this great title, Language Unlimited, and it should give you a sense of kind of wonder about the power of human language, its its expressiveness, its almost unbounded creativity, and that resides in each one of us. You may not think of yourself as infinitely creative, but chances are today you've said a sentence that no one else has ever said. In fact, I can guarantee you most of the sentences in this interview have never been said by a human in human history and may never be said again. Lane, thanks very much for coming in. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from The Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.